I'm the founding president and CEO of the council. This is our 39th year, and we're delighted to be able to continue throughout this period a series of, of webinars and other projects, uh, uh, events, and activities, all of which uh, seek to enhance uh, the vision that we have for an improved, strengthened, heightened relationship between the United States and its Arab uh, friends, allies, and strategic uh, partners. We have a lot of work to do. We've been doing a lot of work, but the region is not uh, going to hell in a handbasket as the media would, would suggest. There are 22 Arab countries. Uh, by my count, about seven or eight uh, in uh, the time of their life with uh, death at their doorstep, so to speak. It's a dark hour for about seven, but this is nowhere near the polarity, let alone the majority. So let's keep things in context and background and appropriate perspective, lest we mislead ourselves and others. We seek to have a relationship that is on as firm a foundation as possible, one that is strategically strong with regard to issues pertaining to war and peace, uh, where the economic ties and the material aspects bearing on people's cost of living, standard of living uh, is healthy and uh, secure and stable and peaceful and prosperous. We have a long ways to go on that. And on the political fronts, likewise, uh, here's a situation where today, much of the American media was filled with accounts of how the United States uh, president should bring up this issue and that issue pertaining to uh, human rights. And without regard to lessons learned, how this is typically often backfired, backfired and the context of it uh, being an intrusion into the domestic affairs of other nations. We would not tolerate this uh, where other countries, governments and leaders uh, to intrude into our domestic affairs. Uh, were we to be lectured, were people to pontificate and be pompous about what we should do and should stop doing or not do, not even contemplate uh, uh, doing. Uh, so in this regard, we have little footing on which to stand in the sense of uh, being legitimate or credible when we talk about being accountable. Uh, when in the most recent uh, visit of America's Commander-in-Chief, uh, President Joseph Biden, to uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, he did uh, bring up these matters in a lecture uh, kind of uh, uh, forefront. Uh, this is antagonistic. Uh, this is intrusive. Uh, uh, this is unwarranted, especially when there's no reciprocation in here. Uh, if one is only mindful of the lack of accountability pertaining to the US treatment of uh, prisoners of war and just prisoners, prisoners at Guantanamo Bay prison uh, in Cuba uh, and the hideous, uh, audacious uh, captions of photos of the treatments of captives in Iraq at the prison in Abu Ghraib. So there is much to focus on this morning 
uh, in terms of America's almost 80-year relationship uh, with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. It's a relationship like no other we have in the, in the world, and it's a relationship, despite its ups and downs and flaws, uh, is one that is the envy of virtually every other uh, country in the world. I know of no country that would not trade places with the United States in their relationship with Saudi Arabia, if they but had the chance there. And it's a remarkable miracle kind of story where each country has benefited enormously, uh, nationally uh, and bilaterally. Uh, but beyond that, so too has the region. Here's a situation where uh, and for the last three and a half decades, uh, there have been wars that have entailed the United States killing more Arabs, killing more Muslims than any other place on the planet, where as a result of America's policies, positions, and intrusions, and activities, and actions, and uh, invasions, um, you have more widows that, in the Arab and Islamic world than ever before, more orphans in this same region than ever before, more external refugees than ever before, more internal displaced uh, Arabs, Muslims, Arab Christians as well than ever before. So we need to hold up a mirror to ourselves as to what kind of a people are we? What kind of a governmental structure would allow results such as this? Uh, very few uh, writers in the media and very few next to zero members of our national legislative body in the Congress uh, dare bring up these kinds of issues that I've just uh, raised for your serious uh, consideration. So this is just a teaser uh, for what uh, lies ahead for the next hour uh, with three of the most outstanding uh, pundits and analysts and researchers and writers and experienced uh, Americans and Saudi Arabians uh, having to deal with issues that uh, defy easy comprehension, uh, that elude requisite uh, insight, uh, that uh, are evasive of the kinds of uh, understanding and analytical uh, clarity uh, that we need if we are to improve from where we've been, where we are, and where we need to be. Um, uh, the fourth person who will moderate this session uh, will be Colonel uh, Retired Abbas Dahouk, who is the former U.S. Army uh, attache in the U.S. Embassy in Riyadh and the Armed Forces uh, attache as a whole at the U.S. Embassy in Riyadh. And he will be introducing uh, David Rondell, who is the author of Vision or Miraj, uh, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. And he too, having extensive empirical experience, uh, having been the former chief of mission at the American Embassy in Riyadh. And following him will be Michael Gofella, who served as charge d'affaires uh, at the U.S. Uh, Embassy in Riyadh. And for five years uh, in that capacity, as well as a political, senior political advisor uh, to 
former U.S. Central Command Commander-in-Chief uh, General David uh, Petraeus. Um, I'll turn the floor over to Colonel uh, Doe, but not before mentioning that it is with the Gulf Research Center that Dr. Uh, Abdulaziz Asaka, our lead specialist, resource specialist, and speaker and analyst this morning, is uh, one of the three individuals who heads an inter uh, international institution with which the, United, the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations has a formal uh, working a cooperative uh, agreement. Uh, the, the others are with Katara Foundation in Doha, uh, as well as most recently the Adela Foundation in Makala, uh, uh, Yemen, and also with uh, Panorama uh, Tours in Oman. Uh, these are America's partners in the private sector, working beside the public sector uh, to try to fill in some of the spaces to make this relationship more worthy than it has been. Uh, Colonel Dao, the floor is yours, sir. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Anthony, for the uh, uh, opening remarks and for the introduction, and uh, good day to all our uh, uh, viewers, listeners. And welcome to our esteemed uh, speakers here, uh, Dr. Sucker, Ambassador Gefeller, and uh, Mr. Rundle. Uh, today, it's uh, we have that one hour is going to go by quickly, uh, but we're here to uh, evaluate the uh, the visit of uh, President Biden's visit, recent visit uh, to the Middle East, uh, started with uh, Israel and then uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, as uh, we know, the prior the, the uh, former administration for President Trump, he had no. Uh, 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 you know, didn't have to think uh, twice about where he's going to visit first, especially on the international arena. It was Saudi Arabia. That was, uh, and then we know the re uh, what happened there and uh, and the and the uh, all the history behind it. Uh, the following administration, the current administration, President uh, Biden, from the onset, he he did not want to uh, re-engage Saudi Arabia. Uh, took him about a year and a half to uh, to uh, to change his mind. Uh, he even uh, wrote an op-ed about it to justify the visit. So there no, no doubt this is, a, this is a, an important visit. Uh, there's a lot discussed uh, before the visit. Uh, there was uh, very heavily uh, covered uh, during the visit, uh, all the way down to uh, fist bumps and eye contacts and who attended uh, meetings and bilateral engagements. And now we're uh, after the uh, after the after the visit. There was uh, three uh, uh, very very important uh, communiques or uh, readouts came out of the uh, uh, the visit. One uh, out of Israel. It's, it's called the Jerusalem uh, uh, U.S. Israel uh, Strategic uh, Partnership Joint Declaration that came out of Israel. And this is was uh, very uh, evident about uh, the. Uh, the close uh, relationship with uh, or commitment with the United States and Israel, and also uh, the, the word uh, repairing the world uh, was part of this declaration. And then the other in, uh, in, in Jeddah, uh, one with the Jeddah communique between uh, Saudi Arabia and the uh, United States, where they discussed uh, many issues. Uh, one of them is uh, uh, the 5G, 6G cooperation on the communication, the removing of the uh, uh, peacekeeping forces from the uh, island. And, and by the way, those forces are always U.S. forces. They're not uh, foreign forces. Uh, it's been there since 1982. And, uh, and, and then the, uh, the, the overflights for civilian aircrafts, enhanced maritime security, and so on. And then you have the, uh, the, the visit with the, with the summit with the GCC plus three, which is Iraq, uh, um, uh, Jordan, and Egypt. 
uh, and the, the communique came out, uh, the name of the summit was Joint Security and Development uh, Summit. And I think that was also a, a, another uh, uh, a message to United States that the region, that's GCC and the plus three, they're very, uh, uh, they're very keen on, on security and development. Uh, they're not into uh, you know uh, uh, starting coalition, fighting coalitions, or not uh, uh, interested in, in war or, or hostilities at the global level. So all these uh, three have uh, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, material in them, and uh, our uh, uh, three uh, speakers today, I will, uh, will hear their uh, their uh, their, uh, their evaluation on the visit uh, writ large. And with that, I will uh, I will uh, pass the mic to uh, Dr. Aziz Sakar uh, from the Gulf uh, Resource Center, and also personally thank him for uh, this uh, co-hosting this uh, with you uh, today. So, Dr. Uh, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. What a great pleasure to be amongst friends whom I knew for many years. Dr. John Duke Anthony, you know, our relation goes to the uh, uh, beginning of the 80s, I would say, when I met him the first time. And I'm so glad to see David and to see Michael and to see you also, Colonel. Uh, remember the days that you all, the three of you, spent in Saudi Arabia. Uh, you've done a great job for your country and also for the American people when you were surfing under the uh, in, in the U.S. Embassy in Riyadh. Okay, okay. I, I, I would like to start by saying that the uh, you know, visit, uh, it was extremely important visit by President Biden. Uh, there are you know, different views, but I think I will reflect my own personal views about this visit. In general, I think it was quite successful for the purpose and the mission of the visit. The purpose and the mission of the visit, in my opinion, was to restore relation to bring a better understanding, to continue an 80 years of a good relation between United States and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the region, is to, is to re-emphasize in the U.S. role in the region, because this visit also came at a very crucial and critical timing and issues. There were three key issues, in my opinion. One, the previous decision of U.S. reducing their presence in the region. Number two, the Ukrainian uh, Russian crisis, and number three, the continuous negotiation in JCPOA. So the visit comes with a very crucial and very important three big issues in the region. But at the same time, uh, um, reassuring the region of the U.S. commitment in terms of uh, security and their concern about it, I think came at a very highly appreciated time. And at the same time, I think regaining the confidence because somehow at a certain point there was a little bit and I would say more than a little bit of concern that about you know in the region uh, is the U.S. still committed uh, to their historical commitment in terms of the security of the region or no are they going to be still concerned about it or not where do we stand and uh, you know there was a vacuum and that vacuum was gradually being uh, uh, tried by other countries to, to be fulfilled. And this is why I think I was very pleased to hear President Biden saying, we will not let that vacuum uh, you know, be there and we will continue to be uh, uh, in the region and show our commitment uh, for the regional security. The different topics that was discussed was extremely important, whether if I divide it into three key blocks, you know, I would say politically, it was very important for the reassurance and, and, and uh, 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 you know, meeting all the different leaders uh, from the nine countries also in Saudi Arabia was extremely important. 
The second is the strategic block, which is basically to do with the security of the region, Iran, JCPOA, the uh, expansionist and the interventionist policy by Iran, and the sort of sanction that was imposed and how far the U.S. will continue to keep such a sanction. And the third block, of course, is the economic dimension. And the economic, there is, um, again, different uh, segment there. There's the uh, issue of oil prices, issue of of supplying enough oil to the market and trying to uh, uh, overcome the shortage in the market. And at the same time, also continue the other a key collaboration, whether whether is related to the G5, G6, or also other economic relation to tighten it up more with the region. I think if I put it all together and I look at it from a, a, a fair perspective, I think uh, I can say the, the the visit was you know quite successful. The visit uh, for the purpose of it and for the and for the uh, re-enhancing the relation, reassuring the region and rebringing the role of the U.S. was quite important. We understand, yes, we have a very strong uh, economic relation to country like China. China still import 34% of their energy comes out of the Gulf, but at the same time, I don't think the concern of the U.S. is the supplying of the oil to the Chinese, but I think it's more about the strategic positioning of the Chinese and the Russian. I think the region also had the chance to explain about their wishes to see a political solution on the Ukrainian-Russian uh, crisis, uh, because nobody would like to see another major war or another crisis. You know, we have a war in Yemen, and we wish to see that you know end. So, in general, I would say, uh, uh, you know, uh, it was extremely important. Uh, it did reduce the tension. It brings hands together and shaking hands together and talking in the same round table. So it, it does de-escalate a lot of the, uh, um, you know, previous perception and previous um, tension that was there. Of course, uh, human rights issue was discussed in a way or another. And I was, you know, pleased to hear that, you know, President Biden said it, uh, you know, in his speech. And there had been some comment also in that side. So, uh, you know, we should look at it positive. We should look into the continuation of a strong uh, Saudi Gulf US relation. That's what we are all aiming for and hoping for. Uh, th thank you. Uh, that's a very good uh, uh, summary, especially from your perspective as you were uh, sitting in, in Jeddah and uh, looking at it from uh, from that angle. Uh, thank you. Okay, uh, 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 Dr. Randall, would you? Uh, uh, oops, the floor is yours. I would agree that the principal purpose of the trip was to rebuild a damaged relationship. And that I said before the trip that that was a good step and that the president should be acknowledged for taking a political risk in doing so. Uh, and I think he did begin to do that. I think he could have done more. I think that having made the commitment to go to Saudi Arabia having recognized that he would take a great deal of heat, political heat domestically for having done so, that as we say in Texas, he should have gone big or gone home. <laughs> uh, 
rather than worry about whether I'm going to shake your hand or have a fist bump or open my discussion with a lecture on human rights, I would have gone and I would have shook the hand of the crown prince very publicly. And I would have said, Mohammed bin Salman has accepted responsibility for the death of Jamal Khashoggi and he has assured me that it will not happen again. And while I'm here, I wanna tell you about all of the reforms that Mohammed bin Salman has made in Saudi Arabia as regards to religious tolerance and women's rights. And I wanna tell you about the steps that he's been taking to reform the economy under the plan called Vision 2030. And I'm so impressed with Vision 2030 that I'm going to invite Mohammed bin Salman to the White House next year to discuss how the United States can support that. Had he done all that, I think he would have put the relationship on a very strong uh, upward trajectory. For whatever reason, uh, he did not do that. He went halfway and I think in many respects uh, didn't please either side completely. Uh, so I think that's my comment on the effort to rebuild the relationship. My own comment, I guess I already opened with this, but I would say that too, and this echoes what Dr. Anthony said at the beginning of the session, that an obsessive focus on the issue of Jamal Khashoggi is not helpful. It's not helpful to the American economy. It's not helpful to the security of the United States. And while it may surprise people, it's not helpful to the cause of human rights either. Because right now we are engaged in a conflict with a what we now call a peer competitor, that is to say China. And we need all the friends we can get in that competition. And that if we lose that competition uh, to China, a country that now has, what, a million people in concentration camps that monitors your every move with a social credit score. Uh, if we lose that struggle, uh, the human rights situation on this planet will be excessively worse than it is today. And we need to recognize that. And we need to recognize that we need friends uh, to help confront that challenge. So I think uh, those would be the first couple of things I would say. Later on, I might talk about uh, what, how this was perceived in Israel. Uh, but in any event, I'll let, I'll, let, I'll let it go on for the next speaker now. Okay, well, thank, thank you. I like that go, uh, uh, gun, uh, go big or go home. I think that was actually, uh, that's pretty good. Uh, perhaps he should have, have, President Biden could have announced that the, from, from Jeddah, the JCPOA discussion is, uh, is over and come up with something, uh, wait for Iran to do something else, but that's probably wishful thinking. But on the, uh, and also you mentioned something interesting on the uh, invitation. Uh, yeah, he did not, that would have been uh, a good to, uh, maybe a good gesture to invite or talk about the MBS visit by the United States. Uh, but he did invite MBZ for, uh, for the White House. So I think, so, uh, so that's, was it a message to MBS? I'm not sure, but he did invite MB, uh, MBZ to actually join, come to the, to the White House. Um, okay, um, uh, Ambassador Gefallon, uh, uh, mic is yours. There we are. Okay, Colonel, it's good to see you again. So uh, it's again. good to see all my friends on this on the show today. So I agree with David's uh, uh, lavatory Texas uh, phrase. The Texans uh, simply know how to put it. They have the gift of gab, like the Irish. Um, 
Yes, go go big or, or go, go and go long or, or go home. I think the most important thing about the summit is it took place. Like uh, Dr. Slugger was saying, it's extremely important to restart this crucial dialogue uh, between the United States and, and Saudi Arabia. I remember when we were serving uh, over a decade and a half ago in Saudi Arabia, that was our goal at the time as well, to try to revive the, the relationship um, after the damage that it, it had suffered following 9-11. Um, and for a while, the uh, dialogue was very, very strong. We need the Saudis, I would say now more than ever, uh, the Saudis under Mohammed bin Salman's leadership have emerged as the leaders of a, of a huge territorial bloc. I mean, stretching all the way from um, Egypt to the Gulf, all the way from uh, Lebanon's border with Syria to uh, the Sudan. This is a, a huge, stable, relatively stable, uh, politically moderate bloc of Arab states. Uh, and the Gulf certainly is experiencing an economic upswing right now because of uh, record high oil prices, um, uh, thereby making up uh, some of the losses the, uh, the region's economy sustained during the COVID pandemic, when oil, at least here in the United States for a while, was selling at negative prices. We shouldn't forget that was only a year and a half, two years ago. Uh, so the Gulf is, is not threatened by the um, economic um, fallout, if you will, of the uh, war taking place not too far away uh, from the Persian Gulf, just a little bit to the north there, a couple hours flight away uh, in Ukraine, uh, between the governments of Kiev and Moscow. Um, the impact has been big in two areas of great importance uh, all across uh, North Africa and the Middle East, and that's food and energy prices. And in the economically weaker Arab states, uh, the North African littoral, Egypt, Sudan, uh, things are approaching um, crisis levels. Uh, prices um, for food and fuel are simply too high. Uh, and we're looking at the prospect of very serious political instability. And I think migration flows again, like we saw in 2015, unless something is done to address this growing crisis. It's not getting any coverage in the media, but it should. It's much more important than fist bumping, um, uh, that's for sure. Um, and we are going to need the Saudis and the Emiratis and the rest of the GCC colleagues um, to really rally and, and help us um, put together some emergency, an emergency package of measures to deal with what could be very, very serious economic crises in Egypt, Tunisia, um, Libya, a failed state at this point, Morocco, Algeria, and all these societies, high fuel and energy prices are savaging uh, the bulk of the population uh, and uh, uh, creating the possibility for greater political uh, unrest than we've seen at any time since the Arab Spring. So uh, that, that's my two cents. I think this is what we need to talk to Saudis and the Emiratis about urgently going forward. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, that was a pretty good. Uh, uh, a picture um, on energy, uh, diplomacy, or political, and also from uh, from Jeddah. I wanted to uh, expand a little bit on uh, on vacuum. We hear a lot about you know uh, U.S. Uh, pivoting to Asia or U.S. leaving the country, uh, leaving the region, and leaving a vacuum. Uh, and and I think when we say that, we just uh, undermine or not account for all the uh, uh, all the all the countries in the region, all the hard work uh, they've done on the political side, the economic side, and on the, on the military side. I think before before um, uh, before uh, King Salman, before the MBS and the Vision 2030, um, there was uh, the the GCC and also the GCC plus the Arab countries was, did not have a, a, a united agenda. 
and there was a threat to Muslim Brotherhood, uh, United States was the superpower in the region. So they had no options but the United States. I think with the, with the leadership we see now in Saudi Arabia, uh, with the downfall of Muslim Brotherhood, there is other uh, strategic options for, the, uh, uh, for Saudi Arabia, for the region outside the United States. Um, and additionally also, um, the, uh, the commitment of a military force. I mean, Saudi Arabia, for the first time in history, um, not in history, but uh, well, yeah, to, to form a co when they form a coalition in Yemen. I mean, that was a vacuum when uh, when the Houthis went to Sana'a and, and basically occupied the an Arab uh, first Arab's uh, capital, and supported by Iran. There was a vacuum in there. The United States did not interfere. China didn't interfere. Russia didn't interfere. And what happened is Saudi under the Saudi leadership, they they created a, a coalition. It's the first fighting coalition out without the involvement of Western powers. There are many coalitions out there, counter ISIS and others, but this one was, was, was solely Arab countries. Plus, I mean, Pakistan was a little bit in there. But so, that, they, so that there is a political will now to create coalitions and, and take control of their own security. So let's, so the idea of if United States pivoted somewhere else, that you're going to have a vacuum now from these days, I think it's, it's not a good assessment. But so my question, uh, how uh, um, uh, after this summit, yes, uh, Biden came in, the relationship is back somewhat to uh, uh, normal. Now you'll have uh, maybe uh, the staffers can some and said, uh, talk to each other and uh, discuss certain issues, certain topics. Um, but with the, with, the, with, the, with the GCC countries, Saudi Arabia, GCC plus three, would they wait for the United States to act? Or, or they just kind of go on and start establishing a relationship with China and other countries to, to move forward. Because right after the, uh, the meeting with the, in Jeddah, we saw uh, uh, the Russian president and the Turkish president and went to Iran and they had their own version summit, perhaps a show of force. Uh, Russia is showing the United States that I do have a friends in the region as well. Uh, or maybe you're not, you can't isolate me and so on. So what, what do you think, uh, uh, I guess the question is, uh, uh, what would the uh, the GCC or Saudi Arabia now do? Uh, would they wait for to uh, go back um, business as usual in the United States, or are they going to continue uh, uh, their own uh, uh, you know initiatives uh, or to to formulate uh, uh, other friends and allies? Uh, let's see. That for me, Doctor Abaziz. Let's That's start with sure. you first. Well, let me start by saying there are three key issues for us when it comes to the regional security. Number one. We want to build our own capability. And if the US is not willing to provide the region with what they required in terms of adequate defense equipment that they need to defend themselves, then they force the region to look for alternative. We only look for alternative if the US stopped and not agreeing to supply or to provide us with what we feel it's important and adequate for us. Second, JCPOA is very important. We were not part of the 2015 negotiation, and yet we have endorsed it at that time. And when the U.S. decided to withdraw from that, we realized the U.S. have come up with the conclusion that there is a lot of loophole in that agreement. This is why the Iranian, they were able to break it and to increase their number of centrifugian and to go to 60% enrichment, you know, in, in, in a such a short period of time. So what we want to make sure that the U.S. make, you know, have an agreement in the region that will not allow Iran to develop a military nuclear capability that can threat, uh, you know, the whole region and the whole world. 
You see, so that's the second big concern, you see, for us. The third, of course, the maritime security and the maritime security, I'm glad it was mentioned during the visit, but we suffered from three. We suffered from the Houthi uh, on behalf of the Iranian attacking our critical oil facility. And at that time, we thought the U.S. will show far more evident to us and to the rest of the world, proving where it came from, what did it hit, and the damage that that created. Luckily, we have been able to uh, be back into the market and to produce what was, uh, you know, the shortage was created after the damage. But we have not seen a U.S. respond in terms of at when they attack the vessels, neither the tank nor the drone. So we were questioning, is the U.S. still committed with regard to the critical uh, oil facility and maritime security? Is their commitment remains there as it used to be, or there's a different? If I look at these three components, which is the JCPOA, the maritime, and the critical energy security, and I look at the, uh, uh, you know, being able to buy the necessarily defense equipment that we need to defend ourselves from uh, an, an Iranian uh, you know, threat, whether it's by proxy or directly, I think you know, it, it raises the big question. So what, what, what we hope to see as a result of this you know, visit is the realization in Washington that the security of this region is very much you know, linked to the rest of the world. There are some issues we can handle, but there are other issues. It's a global responsibility. The maritime is not just an individual country responsibility. It's a global responsibility. And I'm sure having the fifth fleet uh, you know, components and the agreement that we have between the regional Navy and the US Navy can help to ensure a better uh, you know, Navy security there in, in, in the region. Do we wait only for the U.S.? Yes, the U.S. have been traditionally the main security guarantor. Are they still willing to be, if, you, if they don't want to be physically there and to provide that security, at least they should provide the equipment and the necessarily defense equipment that we need or allow the region to buy it from somewhere else. We never wanted to buy the S-400, neither the Chinese long-range missile. It's only when there is a vacuum from the U.S. supplier. I mean, you all know that Boeing, Lockheed, Martin, Redfield are the biggest supplier of our um, in, in a military requirement here. And we wanted, the region wanted to continue, but, uh, and we understand that Israel would like to have the superiority of the, of, the, of the military capability, but at the same time, we don't want only the perception of the nuclear monopoly that remains with Israel and without having to defend also us from, from any uh, uh, military nuclear capability in Iran, you know, that really today making, making the, uh, uh, you know, the region less secure and less, uh, uh, more vulnerable. Thank you, that's, uh, that's true. I mean, uh, just let me comment on, uh, since you mentioned the defense, the maritime security part of that, because I've been in, uh, in Saudi and in uniform, I worked on this pretty closely. And uh, there is a big commitment on the defense. Always we know that defense, Department of Defense, a lot of commitment. And recently they just announced creation of an additional task force. They call it Task Force 153. Uh, there is a lot of other task forces in there to do counter piracy, counter terrorism, and also to ensure security in the Arabian Gulf. This new task force was designed to do security on the, on the, on the Red Sea, which is pretty timely with the Vision 2030, all this development on the Red Sea, which is uh, pretty good. 
but the issue with this is uh, is political, really. You can put in the task forces uh, to monitor, but the issue is once you find something and on the international water somewhere out there, how do you deal with it? Uh, how do you, how do you, how, who do, what do you, so this is, you gotta have a, pol a political push behind it and commitment to take it to international uh, courts or UN or do something about it or unilaterally. That's what the, what the issue is, it's on the political side. And on the uh, allowing to buy weapons from uh, other countries, which is um, that create also a problem with interoperability. So if you bring in a, a, a equipment from China, for example, or Russia, the problem is the United States will not be able to work with you on on, on with the Saudi or the Gulf on this uh, equipment. You can't work together. You can't deploy them together. So it becomes a, a, a problem when 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 the time comes to execute any operation uh, jointly, which was not happening. And the, the 5G and 6G network, again, that was part of the uh, communique, and that's part of it, interoperability. So you can't, you can't put a U.S. equipment under the, the Chinese 5G or 6G. It has to be strictly U.S. because of the security of the communication. So that is complicated. Uh, I mean, you, you can, uh, we see a lot of uh, cooperation on cybersecurity, on defense, but the issue then becomes the political dimension. Of how do you actually uh, you know, enforce some of this, uh, whatever comes out of that? Uh, anybody would like to comment on this, the ambassador or uh, David, uh, David, on the uh, uh, perhaps the uh, defense side of it, or security aspect of the uh, uh, relationship with the United States going forward? Go ahead, Michael. Well, I just want to say that you know, um, again, I don't think the kingdom is going to switch security partners because nobody else is willing to make the kind of deployments or the kind of investment. In, in this relationship that the United States is willing to make, uh, not the Russians, not the Chinese. Um, I think Moscow and, and Beijing both would like to, um, you know, up their uh, military exports and military technology, military technological cooperation with Saudi Arabia, why not? Um, the Saudis have one of the top five defense budgets in the world, it's slightly larger than the Russian budget. Um, unlike the, uh, the Russians, though, the Saudis at this point still import almost everything that their defense sector requires, whereas the Russians import essentially nothing except for a little bit of high-end electronics. Um, so um, at the end of the day, they have something to talk about, but then you get the inter interoperability issue that uh, Colonel DeHook mentioned, and, and that's really a, a huge obstacle that we run into uh, with the Turks within NATO because of their decision to buy the S-400 um, and their consideration of buying high-end Russian, Russian fighters. The Russian equipment, um, is as good as ours in many cases technologically. Sometimes it's better in terms of reliability. Um, but of course, the support packages uh, from uh, Russell Virginia are generally pretty uh, poor, uh, one might even say non existent. So when you buy a weapon, American weapon system, you're buying a long term relationship uh, that goes to upgrading uh, spare parts um, uh, and maintenance at all five levels. When you buy a Russian plane uh, or tank, you buy the plane and the tank, and that's it. Good luck maintaining it. <laughs> the Russians don't supply that type of service. Um, that said, I mean, I think there is um, a real risk from the US perspective that if we're not, uh, as Dr. Sugger mentioned, uh, willing to supply the Saudis with their legitimate defense needs, especially as Iran moves rapidly uh, to develop its uh, ballistic missile threat um, and uh, rapidly approaches the nuclear threshold, uh, the Saudis have legitimate concerns here. And if we're not willing to supply them with the necessary weapon systems, then clearly they'll look uh, toward China, as they have already in the past on several occasions in the missile area. And the Russians have an awful lot to sell them for 
a relatively attractive price. So we, we have to watch this from the American perspective closely. You know, I would just, I would just add to that um, some small footnotes. Uh, I, do th I think that the two results of the visit that were important and should have been emphasized more were the uh, willingness to, um, main, to use American 5G and also to um, increase the efforts in the Red Sea, which is essentially to interdict the weapons going into uh, Yemen via, uh, from, from Iran. Those are both significant. Uh, I think they were more significant. They perhaps were hard for people to understand or to follow, but they were more significant than the um, overflight from Israel or the troops on the uh, Red Sea Islands. Uh, the, those are both old news. I mean, those, those, those issues are so old, they were actually mentioned in my book. So I don't think that's that, that but that was sexy. So it, so it caught people's attention. But in reality, there were some things that were achieved and the 5G and the new uh, em emphasis on Red Sea interdiction uh, were, were real. Um, those are kind of the footnotes. The major issue I would say is that uh, Saudi Arabia now has a geopolitical relationship with the United States and a geoeconomic relationship with China. That's a tension. Uh, I don't know how it's going to be resolved, but it's uh, not normal. And so I think that's something to, that's a tension that, that we need to pay attention to. Um, I also think there's a tension between uh, supporting the Iran nuclear deal, uh, which is an effort to bring Iran back into the family of nations, and supporting the um, Abraham Accords, which whether people want to admit it or not, was basically prompted by uh, a fear of Iran. So I think there's, there, are, there, are, there are tensions which are not easy to resolve. Uh, the building of the Arab NATO, so to speak, um, is complicated, as uh, the Colonel said, by interoperability. That's not just with China, that's between, you know, if one UGCC member has a French missile system and the other one has an American missile system and neither one want to share the codes with the other, that that's complicates the whole idea of an Arab air defense program. And it also requires you to, and a colonel I think would, would agree with what I'm going to say, is that it requires you to prioritize your um, assets and decide which ones you want to defend and which ones you don't, and to tell other people how you prioritize that. So this requires a lot of um, trust, which I'm not sure is there yet, uh, certainly not perhaps with Israel, uh, which is um, something we haven't really talked about, um, and perhaps we could. But I, my very last comment would be to caution people who say that China doesn't have the ability to become involved in the Middle East. China, I think, has the capability. They don't have the will at the moment, not because they, they don't see it as in their interest. They are quite happy to let you know. China and the United States, oddly enough, have a similar interest in the Middle East, which is to stay the stability and the continued flow of oil. And the Chinese are quite happy to let us uh, handle that. Uh, if you want, you could argue that they became a free rider. Uh, we're going to we're protecting the oil flow to them. Uh, we could obviously interdict it, perhaps if we wanted to, which is why I think in the long run, they are not building a fleet three times faster than we are building ours uh, so that they can sail around the South China Sea. I think that's part of it. 
but I think that they have other ambitions. Uh, they are building, they do have their first base, overseas base was in Djibouti. Uh, so I think that tells you something. So in any event, I think those are the more or less footnotes to what others had said. Well, uh, thanks, thanks, David. You're, you're right. I mean, China is uh, not only uh, they have a ready base on the Horn of Africa. I mean, uh, uh, even in Saudi Arabia, they purchased um, they have strategic long uh, strategic missiles from uh, from uh, China. You have uh, also armed UAVs uh, purchased from China. Uh, you have uh, many artillery systems uh, purchased from China. So it's there is uh, this defense cooperation is already um, ongoing in there. So, the, the, so they can expand the contract uh, accordingly as the Saudi government uh, fit uh, or meets their own uh, defense uh, interest. Um, let's go back to, back, look back onto, because we keep saying JCPOA and Iran, uh, obviously uh, there is a commitment in the United States to, um, uh, to enhance the um, uh, missile and air defense for the whole region, including uh, Israel. So now at least the uh, uh, U.S. has a common, uh, common uh, interest, uh, defense interest of Israel and the, uh, and the, uh, and the GCC and the Arab uh, uh, countries there on uh, countering uh, anything from Iran, whether UAV or missile thing. But on the, on the other side, we see the, uh, 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 let's see, for now, the GCC are moving forward towards political dialogue with, with Iran simultaneously. We do have uh, Saudi government uh, three or four meetings already in uh, in Baghdad, and and I the the uh, uh, recently were saying those those dialogue is going to move from security dialogue to political dialogue on, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and we also know that UAE is uh, also talking about reopening the uh, the embassy their embassy in in Tehran. Maybe Saudi Arabia will follow suit. So, Doctor. Um, uh, um, Abdelaziz, what do you think of this new, uh, uh, you know, uh, direction towards Iran? The Saudis are pushing on the political side and U.S. is still uh, uh, honing, concentrating on having this uh, JCPOA uh, agreement, uh, kind of tunnel, tunnel vision a little bit. So how do you, uh, how do you square that for us? Uh, from your well, there are, you know, thank you for the question. You know, there have been more than five, you know, rounds of meetings officially between the different security, I mean, security uh, department in Baghdad. Uh, one of them, of course, was attended by the Omani. But I think the difference is what I would say that Saudi would like to discuss a practical issue of security concern uh, to Saudi Arabia, like Yemen, while Iran wanted to reestablish political relation first and then talk about the regional issue. I think... Um, you know, by establishing a, a diplomatic relation, which has been cut in January 2016, I don't think that means, with, with the exception of having an, an official communique, it doesn't mean much, you know, in terms of trust or confidence between both sides, because I think we remain extremely concerned about all the different Iran agenda in the region being it the uh, uh, modernization of their missile system, their nuclear program, the interventionist policy, mm -hmm. the expansionist policy, support of militia, uh, you know, all those maritime issue, uh, energy uh, in security, those are still extremely big concern for us. And the war by proxy that in Yemen, you know, for us, uh, after eight years, we understand that without the support of Iran, Houthi would have never been able to survive that long or to stay until today. Sending all these hundreds of uh, ballistic missiles and uh, hundreds of thousands of Katyusha and the uh, uh, Maritime one, without the Iranian support and without the Iranian intervention, without the Iranian training, 
Houthi would have never survived that long. So the Saudi wanted to have a practical steps in terms of discussion while the Iranian wanted to talk about only uh, re-establishing the diplomatic relation. I think there will be soon might be the sixth round, you know, uh, uh, there. And we all wanted to endorse Iraq role, um, as, you know, as a mediation. I myself, I was involved in the track two discussion with them, which basically we have discussed every single issue, in my opinion, that can be discussed with the Iranian. But at the same time, can I say I am optimistic about the future, you know, forward in that one? I would say no, because the lack of trust remains there. And it all depends uh, when, when, when Saudi felt that the U.S. Are, are going, you know, are taking a different path. I think you mentioned something very interesting before in terms of the energy. 65% of our export goes to Asia, but our security remains with the West. So, um, and the 65, basically, we're talking about China, India, Japan, and Korea. You know, they almost represent 65% of, uh, uh, you know, the import of our energy. But when it comes to the security of the region, it's very much linked to the US, very much linked to the uh, West. So we can't compromise that. And at the same time, only when the region saw less US involvement, less US uh, active role in terms of regional security, then they start recognizing and looking and talking to the Iranian in a different way than what it used to be. And, and, and uh, we all, until today, this is why I say the visit in general was great visit for President Biden, but still it's a wait and see result. We have to wait and see what's the real outcome, how the US administration are going to respond to in terms of the negotiation of JCPOA and how far that will go, where the sanction will continue. Are they going to impose really uh, uh, zero uh, nuclear capability there or not, that's, you know, that all remain to be seen. And according to that, you will see the confidence build measure back again between Washington and Riyadh and the rest of the Gulf countries. Thank you. Um, uh, let me ask, this is, I think we still have about uh, 10 minutes to go, uh, but also um, the, from the, uh, from the recent GCC plus three, and uh, was led by obviously uh, Saudi Arabia called for it to, uh, and br brought uh, President Biden to it. Uh, there is a, uh, a new uh, new energy in the region. You can see that that the GCC now all back together. I mean, there's so, so many issues in the last five, 10 years. They're all together. And Egypt seems like a already in total alignment, as, at least on the security and the development side. And that's why I think they call that security and development uh, summit. And uh, uh, Iraq has its own problems, but at least there is also a move to break away from Iran, uh, be stable. And Jordan is also uh, with the team. So, and and uh, part, and uh, one of the uh, uh, Prince Hamad um, bin Salman's vision is uh, making Saudi Arabia or the region is the new Europe. And so now this, I think, uh, people are talking. I've seen this some Saudi friends are also saying this. This uh, this summit is a Hopefully, hope, the hope is to become a stepping stone to this, that, to become uh, some kind of uni unanimity in, uh, in the region, at least on the economic side, and somehow uh, uh, work their security. Not necessarily become like a big superpower, but at least to be able to fight against uh, unconventional warfare of some, uh, of some kind. Uh, so how, um, uh, let's see, from, from the U.S. perspective, let's see, Ambassador uh, uh, Gefeller, 
what, how do you how do you look at this kind of initiative? If 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 there is a new Europe movement in the in the Arab world, I mean, just at least talking together, how would you see the United States fit into this? How would they? What would would we? I mean, recommend the. Uh, uh, I mean, now that this current administration will have two years in it, but I don't know, next administration, who knows what's going to happen. But at least the GCC plus three have to uh, show some kind of continuity across U.S. administration to stick. If they move with the administration, obviously it's not going to stick. But I know this is a hypothetical question here, but I'm just uh, wondering uh, where do you go with it? Well, well right now the security architecture is <clears throat> resemble, resembles a spoke wheel with Washington at the center of the wheel and the spokes reaching out um, uh, to the rim. Some of the um, pieces of the rim are bigger and more important than others. I mean, our major partners, obviously, in defense terms, are the UAE, um, uh, um, Saudi Arabia, and, and Egypt. Um, and yet we have robust defense relations with all the countries uh, that took part in the GCC plus three. So um, coordination is, as you know, variable from your career. It's always uh, taking place sort of from Riyadh to Washington, from Washington to Riyadh. Um, and when we wanted to do things regionally, we had to address um, all of the partner nations individually, always going back to the center uh, to make sure we had the right instructions. So that's a bit cumbersome. We've been talking uh, since my time at US Central Command about the creation of what people in the press are calling in an Arab NATO. Um, I'm not sure that will happen anytime soon. I think um, it, it's a difficult diplomatic dance to try to get um, this array of countries, even though they have very similar positions, very close relations with the United States to work, um, uh, you know, collectively together uh, in a NATO-like fashion. I, I don't want to rule it out, though. I think it's, um, it would make sense. Uh, it would improve regional security, uh, particularly if Iran crosses the nuclear threshold. You're going to need this type of cooperative framework because um, if Iran crosses the nuclear threshold at some point and becomes a nuclear weapon state, either we'll get nuclear proliferation in the Gulf um, and in the broader region, I would throw uh, Turkey and uh, Egypt as possible nuclear weapon states in the future into the mix as well, in terms of political calculus. Um, or we're going to have to have the, uh, an extension of a protective nuclear umbrella over non-nuclear states, um, either from the United States or for Israel. It's easier for the United States to do it, obviously. Um, we have the second largest number of deployed nuclear weapons after the Russian Federation. We, each side has about 6,000 deployed weapons at this point, down from Cold War levels, but still vastly greater than the Chinese arsenal, for example. Um, so I think uh, that type of security architecture would be more efficient. It's desirable. It'll be heavy lift politically getting there. We're just restarting this dialogue again. Um, but it could be accelerated and driven uh, by events in the region, especially if the Iranians cross the nuclear threshold, which they seem to be trying to do. I mean, like Dr. Sugar, I'm really concerned about them enriching to the 60% level in terms of uh, their HEU production. Once you get to 60% purity in, uh, in terms of HEU, it's a very, very small jump uh, with the high-end uh, centrifuges the Iranians have developed uh, to get the weapons-grade purity, which is 98%. Thank you. Thank you. Can I, if I can have just a one finger intervention sure. quickly in that, you know, just a continuation to what Michael said. Uh, to have a security umbrella in the region, I think there are prerequisites. One, it should be all inclusive. So we cannot exclude anybody out of that one. Second, we need to have the proper guarantor. And who's the guarantor? Is it gonna be B5 or the UN or who, who's the guarantor for, uh, for that? And third, we need to resolve the current problem that exists in the region. 
to be able to have a security architecture or umbrella in the region here. It's a, it's a, it's a great idea, but it's going to take some time and it's going to take commitment from everybody and it's going to take an inclusive and not excluding anybody because if we do it without Turkey, Turkey is going to feel it's against them. And if we do it without Israel, Israel will feel they've been isolated, so it cannot be. So that's, that's the complicity of the subject of having the inclusive, resolving current problem that exists in the region, and then providing the necessary guarantor for that. Sorry for that. No, no, thank you. That oh. was uh, very good. Just uh, David, one, me, let me get yeah. one minute. I'll just be very, I got one minute. Um, no, I was, I was going to ask you to, to actually comment on the same, plus add to it, give us your insights on what is the Palestinian fit into this new Europe or uh, Palestinian issue, if you if you want to. Uh, well, that's a whole other, that's a whole, a whole other side of story. Okay. That's another two minutes. <laughs> Um, you know, I would just say, um, to echo what both of the previous speakers have said, um, I don't know of any country that set out and spent money and effort and took political heat in order to get a nuclear weapon that did not ultimately get one. And I include in that Pakistan, India, North Korea, Israel, all of those faced serious sanctions in their effort to um, obtain their weapons, all of them did in the end. I think it would be um, perhaps not naive, but wishful thinking to uh, hope that the Iranians do not someday uh, obtain a nuclear weapon. I think that when they do, the potential for an arms race in the rest of the Middle East is significant and can best be contained by some sort of a Arab or Middle East, I would say NATO, which as I say, uh, not as I say, as, a, as the doctor said, that uh, this would have to include everybody. Uh, and it, it, he was absolutely right. What he said was 100% right. It has to include everybody and it has to have an outside guarantor. And the alternative to that is, uh, and I'm just saying what Mohammed bin Salman said himself, that if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, uh, we're going to try and get one ourselves, which is perfectly reasonable or at least logical. So, um, so that's my comment on the need for some, and, and, and I would Connecting it to this visit, I would say that had the president come home with a piece of paper that said, I have now got an Arab NATO, let's sign up. He would have faced the exact same Senate that Woodrow Wilson did when he came back and said, look, I've got the Versailles Treaty, let's all sign up for the League of Nations, which is that people would have said, no way, we're not signing up for this because they didn't have a positive image of Saudi Arabia. And he needs, we need to do a lot of work in the United States to correct the impression that all the, that the Saudi Arabia is some sort of a pariah state, which it is not. It should be an ally and it has been a partner for a long time. So that was my comment on that. Uh, my comment on the um, visit to Israel, that all depends on whether you believe in this two-state solution. Uh, so I think the people are very divided on that. If you think this two-state solution is a good idea and still uh, viable, then the Biden visit was a good idea. If you think that Netanyahu is going to be the prime minister again in four months and his views on the two-state solution are well known, uh, then you probably didn't do anything except uh, antagonize the Israelis, although they aren't saying that. Uh, but any event, I think those are, I mean, they are saying it to some extent. They were up unhappy about the fact that he didn't put a flag on his car when he drove through Jerusalem that, and he did listen. I mean, uh, Abbas did say some fairly um, provocative things during that speech at the hospital where he openly said, you know, we have, uh, the Nakba has uh, existed uh, for whatever it is, 70 years. Mm. And we, and we are going with the help of the Americans, we're going to undo that. 
And the president just stood there. Uh, so I think there were some Israelis who didn't like to hear that. Um, but if you believe in the two-state solution and the redividing of Israel, or not of Israel, but of Jerusalem, then you think it was a great idea. So anyway, those are my, uh, my points Thank on the, the trip to Israel. Thank you. Also, one of the remarks, or one of the outcome of the visit to Israel, since we talked about collective security and everybody has to be involved in it, uh, the, uh, the president reinforced the QME, the qualitative military edge to Israel. So the United States still very committed to Israel have the qualitative military edge. So kind of that, uh, you know, you can't have it uh, both way here uh, and this have a collective equal security and uh, qualitative military edge. That has to be uh, also reevaluated. Well, thank you for, for, uh, for this. Uh, I think we're, we are a bit out of time. If I ask if you have any closing remarks, uh, we can uh, start do that right now, starting with uh, uh, Dr. Sucker, if you will, uh, just. Well, again, I would like to emphasize that the relation between both sides, the US and Saudi Arabia is extremely important. Hundreds of thousands of our students have studied in your country and they still have very special feeling toward that country. And we wanted to continue to have this strong relation. We understand the value of the US and we understand that. I remember one day when uh, uh, the Secretary of Treasury visited Saudi Arabia during the time of King Abdullah, I said, we remain committed with four things. We never changed pricing our commodity. We kept it in dollar. We refused to join the BRICS you know, to, to, to go for other currency or to do something else to have it. Uh, we kept our development, most of our product and import will remain from the U.S. And we have done a great you know, help and support for country that the U.S., this was during 2008, by the way, crisis. So I think Saudi Arabia commitment remains and will remain close to the U.S. What we need uh, you know, is to overcome the what I would call the current turbulence and reestablish the confidence that we have in, in each other since 80 years and continue the good relation and keep Keep up the good work. And thank you for, for having me today with you. Well, thank you very much. Um, uh, Ambassador Capello? I think we need to recognize, um, echoing what David and Dr. Sugger said, um, that uh, we just need to say it a bit more loudly that Saudi Arabia is the biggest uh, success story in the Middle East in terms of sustainable um, economic and sustainable social and political reform. I mean, it's a traditional Arab monarchy, okay? but is the most rapidly modernizing and changing society in the region. And we're really going to need their help, especially this coming winter, to deal with the economic and political shocks coming out of the Ukraine war, which is the biggest political and military event taking place in the world right now. And it's already thrown both the energy markets um, and the food markets into a great deal of turmoil. This is causing a great deal of economic pain uh, and perhaps uh, paving the way for social and political unrest in the Middle East and also in Europe. To deal with these challenges, we're gonna need our allies, in particular our most important ally in the Arab world and that's Saudi Arabia. So I'm glad this um, uh, summit meeting happened uh, and I hope it's followed by uh, continuous intensive diplomacy because diplomacy is the inexpensive, most effective way of making these things happen. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, uh, David. The United States needs friends and allies. We haven't had a better friend or ally in the Arab world than Saudi Arabia for 70 years. They have 
maintained a stable oil market. They have supported our efforts to resolve the Arab-Israeli dispute. They have financed many pro-Western governments when they were in need of uh, financial assistance. And they may well have to do that again quite soon when this uh, food and fuel prices uh, begin to bankrupt various governments. Um, so they've been a, they, no country supported us more consistently during the Cold War. Uh, and I, and as, as uh, Dr. Sager said, uh, the relationship is, all, is personal in, in many relationships because there is no country in the world where the, the Saudis have a parliament, it's called the Madras al-Shura. Well, last time I looked, you know, over half the members of that had been educated in the United States. There cannot be another parliament in the world other than in Washington where half the members were educated in the United States. If you look at the Saudi cabinet, you will see many people who are educated in the United States. If you look at the board of directors of Aramco, you see the majority, overwhelming majority of them have some sort of American education. So we have a unique relationship with Saudi Arabia and it shouldn't be squandered. It's, a, it's an American asset that we need to uh, burnish and, and, and maintain. Uh, and I think that this trip was a, was a first step and an important first step in, uh, in doing that. So that would be my final thought. Thank you very much for uh, those. I agree with all of you. I mean, uh, Saudi Arabia, not only a center in the geography and the, in the Arab world, Muslim world, also in the global energy uh, as well. So uh, uh, thank you very much. Uh, now, uh, Dr. Anthony, uh, the floor is yours. Well, thank you. And, and building on David Rundell's uh, remarks about the longevity and sustainability and continuity <coughs> of this relationship going on now eight decades. Uh, you can search uh, long and far and deep uh, and not find another bilateral relationship uh, between uh, the United States and a non-Western uh, country than you will find in the relationship with Saudi Arabia. Um, and these hundreds of thousands of Saudi Arabian graduates include uh, PhDs. And ponder the following, uh, that there are more trained, Amer more American trained PhDs in Saudi Arabia's cabinet than there are PhDs in the US cabinet, the Supreme Court, the Senate, and the House of Representatives combined. And this is part of the glue, the adhesive, the lubricant, that uh, cements the usness uh, that uh, is rock solid in the realm of trust between the United States and those nearly half million Saudi Arabians who have had the most formative educational and upbringing years of their life uh, in the United States. And you add that to another 500,000 uh, uh, cumulative from uh, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, the UAE, and Oman, and you have a million uh, Arabs uh, at the headquarters, at the epicenter of prayer and pilgrimage, of faith and spiritual devotion uh, for uh, uh, nearly a quarter of humanity. Uh, no other uh, relationship like this uh, can be cited to exist. And the view that Saudi Arabia was and is a gas station and uh, not a country 
uh, is now in the rearview mirror. And that is, is not just a, a mountain of money, uh, but it is a, a, a pinnacle of, uh, of influence, not just in these geographic regions, geopolitical regions, geoeconomic regions that uh, Abbas Dahouk uh, cited, but also among international organizations. Uh, there are five clusters of these. Uh, there are international organizations at the global level, level which include the World Trade Organization, the uh, World Bank, the uh, International Monetary Fund, the United Nations itself, where we sit side by side, elbow to elbow. There's no wide minimum, no we and they. No, there's an usness running through all of these meetings and agendas and subjects and focus and dialogues and position papers and opinion formulations that result from those institutional uh, ties. And then you have the interregional ones in which the United States is not a member. Here you're talking about the organization of Islamic uh, cooperation and the organization of petroleum exporting uh, uh, countries, uh, just to mention uh, two. And then you come down to the regional level where you're closer to blood, to clan, to family, to kin, in terms of uh, the League of Arab States, the Organization of Arab Petroleum uh, Exporting uh, Countries, the Arab Monetary uh, Fund. And then you come down to the intra-regional uh, institutions with regard to the Gulf uh, Investment Fund, and most importantly, the uh, six-state uh, Gulf Cooperation Council, which is the longest, most successful example of uh, Arab cooperation in uh, modern history. Uh, we thank all of you for your attention. Uh, we thank this as a four specialist for devoting time and energy and effort uh, to focus on the most recent uh, presidential visit uh, to uh, the uh, epicenter, as I mentioned, in terms of Saudi Arabia, which uh, drew not just the six GCC countries, uh, but the others that, that were mentioned that came uh, from different countries. This has been unprecedented also. Uh, so let's focus on the positive and uh, minimize the negative and strengthen uh, the pluses and reduce uh, the negatives. Aslan, uh, Wasatan, thank you all. God bless every one of us, and God bless all the relations that we focused on today. Goodbye.